Welcome to Equipping the Body. I'm Dr. Brad Starnes, and today we're going to begin a brand new study of the epistle of 1 Peter, 1 Peter. And I've got several studies from the first couple of verses, but before we do, we want to get into some introductory matters. 1 Peter. And so what I want to do is just read the first verse of chapter 1, mention these introductory matters, and then move on to something very interesting I see in the text. Chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Cappadocia, I love that word, just rolls off the tongue, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So, um, there is some doubt among more liberal scholars that uh, of the Petrine authorship of uh of first peter that that they don't believe that peter wrote it um and i'm going to tell you why they doubt uh peter is the author and then as an inerrantist why we can't because if we believe the bible's inerrant and it says peter wrote it and he didn't write it then the bible's no longer inerrant so you you can't be you know, a quote liberal Christian and believe in the authority of Scripture. They 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 don't go together. Um, the one of the reasons they say that Peter couldn't have wrote it is because of the level of Greek that is used um, throughout the letter. It, it is very uh, polished. It's very high, um, and we know that Peter was a fisherman that he did not have a formal education, such as the Apostle Paul did, who was very educated, um, that Peter had no formal education. And they say for somebody like him to use this level of Greek is just un, you know, not probable. Well, first of all, I want to say this. That's really a non-issue uh, when we consider that the most common language um in that area was Aramaic, but the in the second likened to it, Greek, and that almost all the Jews of the dispersion, I mean, with very few, uh, there many of them, uh, Greek was their second language, Aramaic their first, and I've even read research where some of them, um, we now believe that that's all they spoke was Greek. So to say that Peter over the years could not have uh, become very eloquent uh, and very fluent in Greek. That's just that's kind of an argument from silence. I mean, I understand that he wasn't educated, but when you spend years and time uh, reading and speaking and 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 writing uh, a language, I mean, it only comes with common sense that you're going to get better at it. Um, and then, secondly, uh, we believe that Peter didn't write it, but he dictated it to his scribe, Silvanus, which is the longer name of Silas, who was also a understudy and help to Paul, which would explain, do more to explain why the Greek is so complex. Um, the other reason liberals say that Peter couldn't have wrote it is because uh, that it speaks much of persecution and that persecution didn't go outside of Rome uh, until the time of Domitian and Diocletian 
uh, and that Peter wrote during the Neronian persecution. So it wouldn't have made sense for him to be talking about persecution to people that were outside of the main city of Rome. Uh, that's also uh, false because we know that even during the time of Jesus and right after the ascension, that followers of Jesus were persecuted uh, not only by the government, but by the Jewish populace. So who's to say that he could not have in mind uh, persecutions from other sources outside the Roman government, although we know that the Roman government did persecute Christians. Um, again, that's kind of, they're basically making an argument from silence, okay? Um, and then the third argument, which is almost laughable, well, Peter, he, you know, this book sounds too much like Paul. The theology is too Pauline. And we know that uh, Peter was the apostle uh, to the Jews, and Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and this book just, you know, smacks of all this Gentileness. Uh, again, you know, that that's just... That's just dumb. I mean, I honestly, that's the only way I know how to say it. Uh, did, was Paul the apostle to the Gentiles? Sure. Uh, but did he preach the gospel to Jewish people? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, would Are we going to sit here and say, well, Peter, he, he never encountered a Gentile? I mean, that that's just such a false, uh, convoluted argument. So, anyways, Peter wrote the book of First Peter uh, and... You know, that's where all the conservative scholars are. And in my mind, any objective scholar who's not approaching the text with an agenda that they're going to undermine inerrancy should be able to come away with uh, with uh, Peter as author. Now, anyways, that's introductory matters. Peter wrote it in the early 60s A.D. Uh, to Christians who were scattered abroad. Um, I realize that he uses the word dispersion, and that almost always referred to the Jews except for one issue when it doesn't. Uh, the church is often referred or known as strangers. We are scattered abroad. We are pilgrims. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are temporary residents, so it's completely um, acceptable to use that term to describe uh, Christians in a spiritual sense in this world. So all that aside, let's get started. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. The thing I want to call to your attention today is the idea of the Trinity as it relates to salvation. I believe the doctrine of the Trinity is important because it's one of the marks of orthodoxy. It has a, it is a fundamental of the faith. It is a cardinal doctrine. It is a non-negotiable truth. If you do not believe in the Trinity, to be candid, you're not Christian. Uh, second, I believe it's important in order to fully appreciate who God is, to see each person of the thrice holy Godhead described in their perspective role in salvation. God is far more complex than we think. 
and in our theologically shallow hour that we find ourselves in, we must be aware and appreciative of the complexity of God. Third, and this is akin to the first reason, the Trinity is one of the doctrines that separate us from the cults. Neither Jehovah's Witness nor the Mormons believe in the Trinity as revealed in Scripture and testified to in church history. I want you to understand that these are doctrines that relate to salvation and the Godhead. Therefore, they are uh, non-negotiable doctrines. These are things you must believe to be saved. Um, this is not an example of a negotiable doctrine, such as, is Jesus coming before the millennium or after the millennium? Uh, I think he's coming before, but if you believe he's coming after, that doesn't mean you're not saved. The Trinity, however, is a doctrine that's related to the gospel. You have to believe the gospel to be saved. And if you take the Trinity out of the gospel, you don't have a gospel because the Trinity is directly related to the character and the attributes of God himself. And so to deny the Trinity is to deny God himself. To deny God himself is to deny the gospel. Therefore, like the virgin birth, um, the Trinity is a non-negotiable. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you're not a Christian period, okay? Now, the term Trinity is credited to the first century church father, father Tertullian. However, the doctrine itself can be found in the book of Genesis. We see Trinitarian language used in chapter 1 of Genesis, such as, then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Not only this, but we see the idea of the Holy Spirit working as Moses wrote and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then we see Trinitarian language in the New Testament. John wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Also, we see the Trinity represented the most clearly, I would argue, in Matthew, where the Spirit descends as a dove, the Son is standing in the river, and the Father is speaking from the heaven, all at the same time. Now, my point is not to do a topical study on the Trinity. Rather, I just want to hone in on Peter's point of our salvation, which is the major theme of 1 Peter, that because we're saved, we can endure persecution, blah, blah, blah. And to show that in speaking of this, Peter reveals to us the Trinity's role in our salvation. So we're looking at 1 Peter 1 and 2, and we're going to look at three headings. First of all, election by God the Father. Election by by God the Father. Second of all, sanctification by God the Holy Spirit. Sanctification by God the Holy Spirit. And then third, redemption by God the Son. So election by God the Father, sanctification by God the Holy Spirit, redemption by God the Son. Okay, so he's writing to believers, and let's look at this first statement. Elect according to the foreknowledge of of God the Father. Now he explicitly has stated that election originates within God the Father. That is, election is not a matter of human initiative or chance, rather that God has elected the saved according to his own foreknowledge by his own will. Now the word elect comes from the Greek word eklektos, which literally means picked out or chosen. Now notice the next phrase, according to his foreknowledge. Now, according to, what does that mean? Kata in the Greek, it means by or along. So he elected them by his foreknowledge. He knew beforehand who would believe and who would not believe. 
that was all set up. Uh, God knows, and he elected accordingly, or vice versa, however you want to say it. God God knows he's going to be saved. He has elected the church. Okay? Now, foreknowledge, that's not a hard word in a sense, is it? I mean, for, before, and then knowledge, to know something, so to know something before. God knew before Adam and Eve were formed who would be saved and who would not be saved. And he elected them according to his purposes and his will, and he knew he knows everything we're going to do, by the way, not just what we're going to do with the gospel, but he knows everything we're going to do, period, long before we ever do it. And so we are simply agreeing with Peter that the Father's role in salvation is election. Therefore, as the Bible says, salvation is of the Lord. It was crafted in the mind of God the Father before Adam and Eve ever existed, much less fail. So, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, that offers us, by way of application, security in that God knew my salvation before I got saved. And what God knows is going to happen is going to happen. One way or another, sideways, backwards, or forwards, if God knows the future, then the future will happen as God knows it. That doesn't scare me. That gives me security. Man, that feels good to know that God knew he was going to save me. He knew I was going to repent. He knew he was going to grant me faith. God knew before I was ever thought of. Also shows love because God knew what kind of rascal I would be. And he sent Jesus anyways. How fantastic is that? So election by God the Father. So God thought it. Okay. Next, not only did God thought it, but the Holy Spirit wrought it. We see sanctification by God the Holy Spirit. Peter continues, in sanctification of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in our sanctification process. Sanctification is the process whereby the Holy Spirit works in us and through us to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. He convicts us when we fail God by sinning and leads us to repentance. Moreover, he gives us the will to do good and to obey God. In doing this, slowly but surely, throughout our lives, up until the point we die, he is sanctifying us. He is setting us apart. That's what that word means, set apart. Making us holy. I heard Alfred Willis say this, and I'll never stop saying it. When I got saved, I didn't become sinless, but I do sin less. Okay? That, that Man, there's a lot of truth in that. That is the truth. That from the moment you got saved to the moment you die or the rapture comes, whichever happens first, there should be less and less sin in your life because the sanctification process. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, He will complete the good work which He has begun. So again, that word sanctification comes from a word whose root word is hagios which is holy, set apart for from uncleanness, holy. So God is holy. He is separate from all uncleanness, and by this the Holy Spirit is setting us apart. He is purifying us. He is preparing the bride of Christ for the ultimate culmination, which is the wedding, when we receive our glorification and perfection in heaven. Now, the Holy Spirit's sanctification work began at conversion, he convicted you and I of our sin and revealed to us the need of the Savior. 
As John said in John 6, 44, the Father draws men to him, and he does this by the Holy Spirit. Sanctification continues and that the Holy Spirit teaches us the truth of Scripture and gives us the faith to believe it. Jesus said in John 14, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. So, for example, as a believer, have you ever been tempted to sin or sin and a Scripture verse came to your mind and convicted you of that? Well, that wasn't your subconscious. That was the Holy Spirit bringing to your remembrance, as he said he would, the teachings of Jesus Christ, i.e., the Scripture. As you go through this life process, the Holy Spirit brings you to spiritual maturity. And his evidence of that is his fruit. Do you have the fruit? I didn't say fruits. It's not plural. Fruit. Do you see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life and growing as the years go by? If you don't, you should not consider yourself converted because the Holy Spirit has never done anything halfway. And people that are saved go through sanctification. That's a Bible fact. It's not up for debate. It's not up for argument. It's literally what the Bible teaches. Galatians 5.16 I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things you wish. The Holy Spirit wars against our fleshly desires to keep us from sinning. Now sometimes we resist His sanctifying work, and we sin. But thankfully in those times we have the promise of 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, we'll be forgiven of our sins. So how does the Holy Spirit grow us? Well, through illumination, which is also part of sanctification. He teaches us the truth of Scripture and gives us faith to believe it. Lost man can't understand anything in Scripture. Now, we don't understand everything in Scripture, but as we go, we should understand more and more. But the lost man can't understand anything because the Bible says that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit, for they're spiritually discerned. He, he, can't even, he can't even start. He looks at the idea that a homeless Jewish person died on the cross and that forgives sins. He said, what kind of craziness is that? But we look at it and say, that's the most beautiful story ever told. Why? Because faith and repentance are gifts from God. And by the process of illumination, the Holy Spirit is illuminated. And as we go along, we learn more and more as we study our Bibles. Now, sanctification is not passive. Okay, you have to open your Bibles. You have to get off uh, your tail and do stuff. Walk in the works that God has ordained before you, Ephesians says. So I don't want you to get the idea that sanctification is passive, but at the same time, it's not you doing the work. It's you being enabled by the Holy Spirit. So I understand that that may seem a little... I don't want to say contradictory, but hard to understand. And I'll, and I'll grant you that. It is. But it's true. So, how does this apply to us? Well, same application. Security. I know that the Holy Spirit will finish His job. 
that he will complete sanctification in my life and it will end either at death or the rapture, whichever comes first, and then I enter the glorification stage. Justification is when you got saved. Sanctification is the process through which the Holy Spirit makes you look more like Jesus. And then glorification is the final stage when you get to heaven, either by death, rapture, second, whatever comes first. How does that give me security? Because Philippians 1 6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's the second coming, the day when Jesus returns. Or you die, because to be absent from the body is to be present of the Lord. So if your death comes before Jesus' return, you're a winner either way. Now, he has the promise, he will complete it. Okay, so if I see the work has started, any evidence that the work has started, the Holy Spirit's convicting me, then I have full assurance of salvation because the Holy Spirit doesn't, he's never not finished a job. And so aren't you glad if you're saved today, you were elected by God the Father, you're being sanctified by God the Spirit neither of which have anything to do with your actions. Because if they did, we'd all go to hell. Because man left to his own will will choose sin every time. I believe it was David that said in the book of Psalms, can a man take fire in his bosom and not be burned? So thanks be to God, salvation is of the Lord. Because if salvation was up to me, I'd never get it, and if I did get it, I'd probably lose it five minutes after I got it. So, the Holy Spirit continues this work. He said, sanctification of the Spirit. Now, read the next phrase. We come to redemption by the Son. He says, for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll deal with that word obedience the next time we return to these two verses, because there are two sermons here in these two verses. But I want you to key in on the phrase that highlights the role of God the Son a.k.a. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So God thought it, God the Father thought it, God the Holy Spirit wrought it, and God the Holy Son bought it. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. All of this was made possible by your being redeemed by Christ on the cross. The word redemption comes from the Greek word exagorazo, which means to buy, to purchase back. The word is used in various forms all throughout the New Testament to reference Jesus' purchasing of the church for himself. Consider the price he paid. The sprinkling of blood. The sprinkling of the blood. It's a precious price. It was his own life. Before we go any further, why don't you just consider that for a moment? Peter brings it up again later on in chapter 1. He says, Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. We all belong to God by right of creation, but you can only become a son or daughter when you're bought back from the penalty of sin by the blood money, if you will, of Jesus Christ paid in the currency of his own blood. 
redemption by God the Son. God the Father thought it. God the Holy Spirit wrought it. God the Son bought it. What a high price. This is foreshadowed in the Old Testament by the sacrificial system until finally the Lamb would be sacrificed, i.e. the Lamb of glory, Jesus Christ. What a high price. Now this redemption by the Son also offers us security. How so? Because he paid for something we couldn't afford. Now that was so nice, I must say it twice. Redemption by the Son also offers us security because he paid for something we could not afford. You say, well, I don't know. i got a lot of money. You can't buy it with money. Well, I don't know. I'm a pretty good guy. You're not good enough. The Bible says our works of righteousness are filthy, stinking, nasty rags. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. Well, I don't know, Pastor. I'm not as bad as that guy. God didn't ask how bad you were. All have sinned. All. That means everybody. book of Hebrews, without shedding blood, there's no remission of sin. And so I'm so glad that my salvation is secure because I didn't have to pay for it. It doesn't belong to me in that sense. Jesus paid for it, so I belong to Jesus. And through this look at the Trinity's role in salvation, we see that election came by God the Father, sanctification by God the Holy Spirit, redemption by God the Son, and so the role, the Trinity's role in salvation is clearly displayed in verse 2 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. And because of the Trinity's role in salvation, we have security because we didn't thought it. I know that's bad English, but it's good theology. We didn't wrought it, and we didn't bought it. God thought it. God wrought it. God bought it. Let us agree with Jonah who said salvation is of the Lord. And that's just one thought from one verse. Man, I hope you keep studying the book of 1 Peter and we'll get back together soon. Thank you. Have a wonderful day.